I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. As Russia publishes an audio recording of senior Germans discussing military secrets about support to Ukraine, we assess if it's a one-off and whether it could happen to us too. This is a perfect success for Russian intelligence. You can guarantee they're doing it to senior NATO officers and senior national officers from all the different countries that are contributing to supporting Ukraine. Also on SITREP, 60 years of UN peacekeeping in Cyprus. One of the greatest contributions a soldier can make is devoting his time to peace, but I would hope that there aren't another 60 years of unforeseen. We'll get Mike's thoughts on how much longer it must go on. Plus, SITREP Sophie Kakoyanis takes her dad back to where he lived when the peacekeeping troops first arrived. And we talk to the world's only woman chief of defence about breaking through the glass ceiling and whether others can follow her. Before social media, I would always be, oh, a woman, you do, you, how, you know, how did that happen? But now people are more aware, so it is less, it is less of a surprise. Zidrep with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. Mike, um, last week you told us Germany really can't keep a secret and that was before Russia published this 38-minute long recording of four very senior German Air Force officers discussing not just German but British and French assistance to Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, one doesn't expect to be vindicated quite so quickly uh, in the media when, when one says these things. But I mean, what it reflects is a sort of a deeper reality. I mean, as Philip Ingram is saying, and we'll hear from him later on, the uh, you know the, the Russians are doing this all the time, and there's a reason why the Five Eyes intelligence sharing is so important because it's all based on personal trust. Because you're dealing with with America, Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and the fact is they trust each other. The individuals trust each other. Whereas we don't share very much with other European countries. I mean, we have particular issues um, with French policy. I mean, we do share with France, particularly on counter-terrorism things. Um, we don't share very much with the Germans because they're believed to be deeply penetrated and because their security isn't very good. And governments can order the security services to to co- collaborate with their other security services. They can order it, but they can't make people trust each other. That's the point. It's mm. all based on the individual people involved. Have they worked together over years and when that trust breaks down which it does every now and again it's very hard to rebuild it and that's where we are now but that there is a sense in which that there is not the level of personal trust even if they like each other they don't trust each other to keep a secret and that that, you know, that applies across many european intelligence agencies sadly Okay, well, let's just run through some of the facts. The conference call was through a commercial system called WebEx used by many companies. It's a bit like Zoom or Microsoft Teams. We know, for example, that Teams is used by the UK government, including the Ministry of Defence and Armed Forces, for some remote meetings. WebEx does promise end-to-end encryption, and German officials say it was an authorised platform for the meeting. But they say one of the Luftwaffe officers incorrectly joined the meeting through an insecure network possibly hotel Wi-Fi, while in Singapore for an air show. So is this another case of Germany really can't keep a secret or could it happen to us just as easily? Retired Colonel Philip Ingram is former commander of one military intelligence battalion. He told me it's a classic piece of Russian espionage. 
You know, it's clear that they have identified the senior German officer going off to an air show in Singapore. They have put a team on the ground to uh, look at how he behaves and they have um, used that behaviour to target an intelligence gathering programme. Now, if they're doing it to him, you can guarantee they're doing it to senior NATO officers and senior national officers from uh, all the different countries that are contributing to supporting Ukraine. It also shows an arrogance of... Your senior officers, when they're away, instead of following the rules, and the rules are there for a reason, they think they know better. Tell me about the rules and what are they for using remote communications in UK defence and the armed forces? Well, the, the principles are the same, whether it's UK or whether it's you know, any nation. If you're coming into a classified conversation, you do not come in over um, an unsecured Wi-Fi network, even if you think that your endpoint has got some form of security on it, uh, because you know it, it can easily be intercepted. If you're going to have sensitive conversations like um, it seems to have happened here, um, there is a very good reason why there are embassies all over the world and those embassies have um, you know, secure areas where you can have secure conversations. Yes, it might mean it, that the senior officer has to uh, spend an extra hour going and getting sorted out and uh, and everything else and it messes them around a little bit when their social life is, is more important but actually it's there for a reason. It's there to stop this sort of thing from happening. Anyone who uses an insecure network to access a secure conversation is being naive in the mildest way. And I know the German security services, I know the briefings that they give into their senior officers. They will have briefed these officers on the potential threats that are out there. But arrogance and self-belief that because you're of a certain rank is something that is frighteningly common in, I think, just about every military that there is, the Russians recognise that and the Russians are exploiting it. The Chinese recognise that and the Chinese are exploiting it. Presumably though there are various levels of network security depending on the level of what's being discussed. Oh very much so um, and you know, there's nothing to stop you having certain conversations over uh, an open network but it's, it's the same as whenever you're back in barracks you, there's things you'll discuss on a mobile telephone with a colleague there's things that you'll discuss on a landline with a colleague there's things that um, you will only discuss face to face or you'll only discuss over properly secured telephone systems in a secured area um, and the principles apply overseas and in fact they should apply more stringently overseas because um, it gives people an opportunity to intercept things in a way that you don't realise and it seems that this um, senior German officer has been a victim of proper good old-fashioned espionage. This is a yeah, perfect success for um, Russian intelligence. So the kind of things that appear to have been discussed in this German recording, political decisions on missiles, information about what British and France are doing to support Ukraine, training of Ukrainian soldiers, what kind of system would you expect to be used in that kind of conversation in the UK? That, that kind of conversation, the level of detail that we're going in, it would have to happen over a secure system. So you know, there are a number of different secure systems that are around the exact classification of it. I'm not aware of, but it, it will have been as a, as a minimum um, at a, a secret level. Um, and therefore, you, you have got 
different telephone systems that work to that. And embassies across the world have got those systems that are secured to that sort of level. So, you know, the, the senior German officer should have popped round to the German embassy and dialed in. And you and you, know, you can dial into conference calls or you can have you know, one-to-one calls through through these systems. You know, the, the classic in the UK we keep hearing about is is Cobra, your cabinet office briefing room alpha, where you get the Cobra meetings, and that has secure communications coming in from your senior personnel involved in whatever Cobra is discussing, and it can be all around the world. The German officer should have gone to the German embassy. And are people always the weakest link? Uh, yes, um, you know, it's human nature that comes in. And unfortunately, I find that, um, and I have, have found in the past, that the more senior officers tend to be the weakest link because they go, well, yes, I, I, I have to do this, and therefore I'm going to make this call, and I'm so senior that you know, it doesn't matter whether it, it, it comes in because I'll just sort it out. Well, that seems to be what's happened here. And I've, I've, I've seen it time after time after time, and people just don't learn. You know, they want convenience over security. Um, And this is where there needs to be consequences. And what about the suggestions that actually it could be a Russian spy working within the German authorities? It it could quite easily be. And and this is where it it will have triggered a major counterintelligence um, uh, operation. Uh, and the, the Germans need to get to the bottom of to as to exactly where the compromise happened. It could be that um, the senior officer's um, personal device was compromised. It could be his hotel room was compromised. It could be the hotel Wi-Fi was compromised. Um, it could be um, one of his aides that was there um, potentially listening in um, quietly or, or someone else had dialed into it that wasn't aware that had been compromised. It could be someone inside um, the German headquarters that's compromised. It's really important they get to the bottom of this because, um, and, and, and then look at where else similar things could happen. And I mm-hmm. think it's also really important that we don't just say, oh, this is a German problem. I think every NATO contributing country needs to sit down and go and take the real lessons that come out of this once it's been identified and go, could that happen to us? What are we doing to ensure that something similar doesn't happen? Because I can guarantee the Russians are targeting in a similar way. Philip Ingram, great to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Mike, Philip Ingram is pretty clear there. He thinks the same could happen to us. Yes, it could. In principle, it can happen to any organisation. And it all, as Philip said, it all depends on the protocols and and how strong the protocols are. I mean, I think it's less likely to happen here in the way it happened in Germany, because we've lived with stronger security protocols for longer within our military, partly because of our Northern Ireland experience and because we're nearer to the front of Cold War politics than Germany often is. So I think our protocols tend to be stronger But as he said, you're dealing with human beings here and people can always ignore the protocols or just be careless with them, which appears to be the case here. And there's another reminder this week, Mike, that people are potentially the biggest risk factor. A retired US Lieutenant Colonel who was working as a civilian contractor at US Strategic Command has been charged with illegally disclosing secrets about the Russian invasion of Ukraine to someone on a dating website. It sounds like the stuff of bad movies. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he was a contractor, so he wasn't in uniform, and he's on a he was on a dating site. I mean, this is what I call it's a sort of cyber honey trap, and we live in the world now of cyber honey traps, where you know the, there is no end to the stupid things men will say to try to impress women, and. <laughs> And so here he is trying to impress somebody on a dating site with how important he is. It's, uh, it's a story as old as the hills, I'm afraid. Mm. Well, let's uh, now go to Cyprus and a special event in the buffer zone. 
the inauguration of the monument dedicated to all United Nations peacekeepers who have served in Cyprus. The unveiling marks the 60th anniversary of the peacekeeping mission. In that time, 160,000 soldiers have taken part in the mission, more than 70,000 of them British. And while it's often seen as a sunshine tour for troops, we should remember that in those 60 years, 187 international peacekeepers have died, most as a result of accident or illness, but 15 from what the UN calls malicious acts. Mike, on the one hand, you can view it as a very very successful mission in that since the 1974 war, Cyprus has remained largely at peace. On the other, 60 years on, it's still needed. Yes, and I mean, this is one of the problems of UN peacekeeping operations. I mean, look at um, uh, UNIFIL in, in Lebanon. You know, it's, it's been there since, what was it, 1978, I think it was, 70, 77, still ongoing and still obviously required. And the danger of um, uh, peacekeeping operations is that they build this culture of dependence whereby it takes the pressure off local actors to come to a better political settlement. So it, it sort of stabilises some sort of rough peace and that becomes institutionalised and then the peacekeepers become part of the furniture. And the difficulty in Cyprus is that it's not the hottest spot in the world, thankfully, but it could become a hot spot again, depending on how Turkish internal politics go and how Cypriot, Greek, Greek Cypriot politics go, not so much politics in Greece, but, but Greek Cyprus and mainland Turkey, those are the two sort of actors in this. And there's no guarantee that it wouldn't become a sort of hot conflict again. But for as long as the peacekeepers are there, it takes the pressure off them to come to any better settlement. That's always the, that's always the difficulty. And then the question also arises, well, does Britain have to be um, in the forefront of this particular mission? I mean, we do have really important bases at uh, Akutiri and Episcopi, and that Akutiri base is, is more important than it's been for many, many years, given everything that's going on in the Middle East and has been since the last, in the last decade. So what we do at Akutiri is really important to us, just like Gibraltar. Gibraltar and Akutiri are the two really important bases that we have in the Mediterranean. We certainly want to keep them. And if this peacekeeping operation is part of the, 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 the premium we pay to help keep them, that's fine. But I don't think it really is. And we ought, I think, to investigate ways of relieving ourselves of that particular duty, because, my goodness, we need all of our forces elsewhere at the moment. Well, we can talk now to our Cyprus reporter, Sophie Kakoyanis. Uh, Sophie, good to speak to you. Can you just give us a very quick history lesson of what this anniversary marks and what has happened since? Yeah, so most people, when they think of the need for peacekeeping in Cyprus, they tend to think of the conflict in 1974. But actually, the UN were here in Cyprus a decade before that, in 1964, and they were here to stop the fighting between the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots that was happening all across the island, but particularly in the capital, which is Nicosia. And what does that peacekeeping mission entail today exactly? So today you have British forces patrolling a buffer zone area of Nicosia, which originally started as a green line back in 1964 to divide the fighting forces. And they patrol this buffer zone to basically keep the peace between the two sides still to this day. It's one of the UN's longest serving peacekeeping missions. So, Sophie, what is the future of the peacekeeping mission? There is quite a sombre tone, I sense, amongst the people in the mission that 60 years later, um, peacekeeping is still needed in, in the buffer zone in Cyprus. Um, I 
spoke to Colonel Ben Ramsey, who's the force chief of staff for the UN peacekeeping mission in Cyprus. The, one of the greatest contributions a soldier can make is devoting his time to peace because with peace comes all sorts of opportunities for the next generation. So uh, for me, it's, um, it's something very special, but uh, I would hope that there aren't another 60 years of UNFASIP. In fact, I hope that we see an end to UNFASIP because ultimately, uh, we'll see a resolution to this conflict as soon as possible. That's what I really hope for. Our responsibility is to maintain peace. It's the politicians on either side and the communities, really, their responsibility to make peace uh, and give a hope to their, their communities on either side. And I, uh, I hope that is going to happen uh, in the very near future. And Colonel Ben Ramsey also shared with me that his dad was one of the soldiers that was sent in 1964 when the mission started as well. So a sentimental role for him. And another thing he mentioned to me, which I found really interesting and poignant, was that he says the absence of war doesn't mean that there's peace. So definitely a time of reflection, I think, this 60th year. And how big a deal or not is this anniversary then to the people of Cyprus? definitely serves as a time of reflection, not just for Cypriot people, but also for the veterans that have served over the last six decades. 43 nations have contributed personnel in that time. But for a lot of generations and people being born now, they don't know any different than having a buffer zone go throughout the country. And Sophie, um, this anniversary has personal significance also for you and your family. Yes, that's right. So the UN mission in Cyprus started in 1964 and my family, who were living in Limassol at the time, emigrated in 1966 because of the fighting that was going on. And I had a special chance to go back to the house where my dad grew up with him. So, Dad, how did you find it, kind of living here? Um, you hear from the radio that there was fights between Greek and uh, Turkish Cypriots and, uh, you know, it was getting worse and worse and uh, the situation started getting um, to the stage where people started getting a bit concerned as to what was going to happen. And then when the government told us all that we had to build our own trenches, I mean, uh, here opposite our house, it was just a big field, there was nothing at all. And uh, we had to build trenches and with steps going down, so if there was any bombing, you know, we would be safer. And the same thing happened to my school, which is just around the corner. Uh, the, whole, the playground was totally taken up by all these trenches. And what was that, what was that like, having well, trenches actually, in your playground? Well, actually, for us, at the time, being 10 years old, it was great fun, uh, because we used to run and play hide-and-seek there, and it was just great in the playground, you know. Um, although the reality, we weren't really, you know, at that age, didn't really realise what was to happen. And then uh, things got escalated even from that. And uh, my dad realized that not only there was gonna probably be an invasion, but he felt they were gonna take over the whole island. So it wasn't just gonna be the north. I mean, the north just happened to be because it's nearer Turkey, I guess, they took that bit. So uh, that was when my dad decided to sell up and uh, we moved to England. How, how did that feel for you to kind of leave, leave home? Well, obviously, I had all my friends here and everything. I didn't want to go, I had no choice. And my mum would persuade me that that was the best for us. And, you know, it was dad's decision. And uh, at the time, obviously, she didn't want to go either because, again, she was living behind a lot in her life here. So there's a real sense there of the communities going from living side by side 
But all these years later, 60 years later, going back to where my dad grew up, the island is still divided. There hasn't been a full resolution and Nicosia still remains the world's last divided capital city. Sophie, really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. Now, every single country in the world, all 193 of them, allows women to serve in at least some military roles. And yet only one country has a woman at the very top of its armed forces. Rear Admiral Antoinette Weems-Gorman is Jamaica's Chief of Defence Staff. She is only the second woman in history to hold such a role. Slovenia was the first country to appoint a female Chief of Defence in 2018. It's a stark reminder that women are significantly underrepresented across military ranks and just a tiny number make it to the very top. But Rear Admiral Weems-Gorman has also proved it can be done. She's been telling me about her route to the top and her job leading the Jamaica Defence Force. We are a division-sized force, uh, five brigades. We are responsible for national security issues, internal security, um, maritime law enforcement. Uh, We do national disaster management and response, search and rescue. Uh, So we are a hybrid, not a one domain type of armed force. Uh, We have the air wing, the Coast Guard, or military intelligence and special forces are nested within one brigade called the Maritime Air and Cyber Command, and cyber being our very nascent capability, and lastly added to one of our roles. Our land forces do largely internal security operations in support of the Jamaica Constabulary Force. And then as you may as well be tracking that, we have been uh, directed to form part of the multinational security support mission to Haiti, as she, Haiti is our closest neighbor and their challenge is there. And you've served for more than 30 years in the Jamaica Defence Force. Can you just give us a sense of what you'd done before you got this job? I started out as a Coast Guard officer, so I did my um, my training in the United Kingdom at the Britannia Royal Naval College. Uh, started out as a Coast Guard officer and went on to command the Coast Guard uh, with a side trip to the, the JDF airing as second in command there. When the force expanded to a division size, um, my job then uh, was the the Maritime Air and Cyber Commander that pulled together the Air Wing, the Coast Guard, or Military Intelligence, or Special Forces, and Cyber. And and then I went on to be the Force Executive Officer to, to General Meade, who's my predecessor. Quite a career, quite a CV there you've outlined. Um, And you've had quite a few firsts on that CV. Uh, First female officer to serve at sea, first woman to reach the rank of commander in the JDF, the first appointment of a woman to a frontline combat role in the Caribbean. What's the journey been like for you? I think it's uh, it's been a rewarding one. Uh, it, it just happened to have occurred in, in, in the spotlight because other women had not had the opportunity to do some of the things I did. But there were lots of women who served in the Jamaica Defence Force and in other military forces that already demonstrated that these things were possible, not just because you happen to have one gender. Uh, and I think what was really important was that I had the right opportunity. I, I, I ended up in the right place at the right time where persons were forward thinking enough to allow me to mm. um, explore my full potential. So, 
But militaries everywhere are male-dominated. What is the reaction of some people when they realise that the head of the JDF is a woman? Uh, they're varied. Uh, some people don't expect me to be as small as I am. I'm only five feet two. Uh, and, uh, and in some cultures, particularly Latin cultures, it is taken by extreme surprise. But I think we, we are advancing and... And with the advent again of the ease of of, of finding information, uh, people now know. Before before social media, I would always be oh, a woman. You do you how, you know how did that happen? But now people are more aware, so it is less it is less of a surprise. Do you think you bring something different to the role because you are a woman? Yes, I think women generally um, approach problems with a different pair of eyes, a different lens. And so you, you see things in a different way and that allows you to, to approach it differently. Traditionally, also the, the military environment, um, there is a lot of testosterone uh, and historically it is a hierarchical kind of, of institution and organization. And so um, people expect and, and, and they carry out their, their leadership in, in a way that is very dictatorial, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think women uh, don't necessarily have that approach. Some don't, not all. There is a long history connecting the UK and Jamaica. How close are your ties to the UK's armed forces in Jamaica? The Jamaica Defence Force and, and UK Armed Forces are, remain closely intertwined and we we are very happy that one of our marquee exercises that we used to have annually, and there was a hiatus, has now been reinstated. And it, it, is, a, it is as if it never stopped. Yeah. Even though uh, it had a break of about a 10-year about a break, that has now started back. And But in between that, we still do a lot of our training with the UK. Mm-hmm. A lot of of the senior officers of the force have been trained with the UK. We now have a very um, unique relationship with the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, where we are training our young officers in Jamaica in partnership with Sandhurst. And I think that is very unique um, for Sandhurst with any other partner in the world. You mentioned the reinstatement of that exercise, um, Exercise Red Stripe, which was on pause for, for a number of years. Can you just tell us a bit more about that exercise? That exercise enables uh, a company of of British uh, soldiers to come to Jamaica and and do training in specific skills that they need to train in a tropical environment, jungle training in particular, and the reciprocal exercise, the Jamaicans would have go to the UK and get an experience in operating in and embedding with a military um, unit in the UK. For the last two iterations of the exercise, however, we'd used the opportunity to expose the, the young officers that were recently trained in on the initial officer training program with Sandhurst. But we, we envision that we will go back to sending an, a company um, of Jamaican soldiers to exercise with British soldiers in the near future. That was Rear Admiral Antoinette Weems-Gorman. We also talked about her memories of being trained at Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth, her approach to changing culture among her troops and her advice for other women who serve or want to serve their country. You can hear the whole conversation in an extra edition of the SITREP podcast online now. Uh, Mike, the UK's highest ranking female officer is Lieutenant General Sharon Naismith. That actually puts her one rank higher than Rear Admiral Weems-Gorman. Uh, Lieutenant General Naismith is definitely 
Deputy Chief of the General Staff, do you think we will ever see a woman reach the very top as the UK's Chief of Defence Staff? Uh, Well, there's no reason in principle why not, because that role can now be played by people who've had a more technocratic background. At one time, it was always always tended to be people who, men who'd been uh, on the front of combat in the elite units, you know, they distinguished themselves in different ways. We see now all of the chiefs are more open to people who've had different career routes who don't have to be at the front end of elite combat units, which women have tended not to be. So there's no reason why not. And if the best person comes to the top, so be it. It's more likely to happen in the army for CGS than CDS, partly because the army is twice as big as the Navy and the Air Force, even though it's pretty small by historical standards. Mm. But there are more women who are able to come up to that two-star rank. And usually, when somebody's a two-star, you can, you know, they, you can see if they're going to going to have a shot of being four-star. That that mm. the three-star rank is, I wouldn't say it's not important, but by by the time somebody's made two-star the people who look as if they could be a four-star officer are pretty clear and what they've done and what they offer is fairly clear. However, the big problem is that the pyramid is getting narrower all the time. So in principle, of course, they can they can come through. Um, but there are t- fewer two- and three-star jobs available now as the forces have shrunk. And it's a, it's a bit as if everyone's climbing up the side of a pyramid. And as mm. they climb, that pyramid is getting taller and narrower as they climb. So the top is getting further away for them as they go up it. And until that begins to broaden out again, and it's not going to do that in the next decade, I don't think, it will be a tough climb for everybody, male and female. And so in that respect, I, if I had to guess, I would say that I think we will have a, a, a female CGS in the foreseeable future. A, f- a female chief of the defence staff, I think, will be further away than that unless somebody really does emerge quite quickly, simply because the pyramid is so narrow at the very top. We shall have to watch and wait. Thank you, Mike, and thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. Professor Michael Clark and I will be back with another sit rep next Thursday. But you can always catch up online on the Forces News YouTube channel, our home at bfbs.com slash sitrep, or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabo, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Online, on the app, on FM, and DAB Plus throughout the UK. This is BFBS. BFBS. The Forces Station.